0: to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we're discovering everything we know about everything we know. I'm talking to Dr. Inanna Hamati Ataya, founding director of the Centre for Global Knowledge Studies at CRASH and a senior member of Darwin College, Cambridge. Her research tracks the development of human knowledge on the grandest scale, from our very beginnings as a species to the world of the present moment and even beyond. Thinking wide and deep and beyond traditional academic boundaries, she's most interested in the things we all have in common, and in tracing the wisdoms that we have won and lost along the way. Not so much a definitive theory of everything then, but a way of recovering knowledge and bringing everything and everyone in. Inanna, it's lovely to meet you, although of course we're meeting in rather unusual times and in an unusual way because we're not sitting face to face. We're recording in our separate homes, isolated, but hopefully still connecting. Now, you describe your work as being at the intersections of world politics, global history, social theory, natural and historical epistemology, and the anthropology, history, and sociology of knowledge, science, and technology. And Anna, this sounds vast. I had to have a little <laughs> lie down just reading about it.
1: Do, yes. do you ever get overwhelmed? Well, I suppose, especially now hearing you uh, um, pronounce this very long sentence, I wish there was just one field that sums up uh, all the, the interesting questions and, and uh, topics that I'm currently dedicating my time to exploring. And I sort of decided to coin a term, which is global epistemics, to try and summarize uh, these particular intersections. So yes, it's it's annoying, it's a bit pompous, but my own background has never, I guess, really been restricted to particular disciplinary boundaries. My trajectory, my training has taken me from uh, the natural sciences to the social sciences, and now I'm sort of back trying to combine all my interests, trying to move freely from you know, nature to society and back and try to understand how they interact really. If the topic is interesting and, and fascinating, and, and if you have interesting things to say about it, I think you can start to connect um, at that level. So you found your home a year and
0: a half ago, you found the home for this kind of interdisciplinary deep work at CRASH and in in the centre that you launched, GLONOS, uh, which is the Centre for Global Knowledge Studies. um, You launched it here in Cambridge in September 2017. And as you launched it, you wrote rather wonderfully that you imagined some extraterrestrial intelligent species visiting us and asking what is the history of your kind? And you wanted to know, did we have any answer to that question that would reflect the advancement of our understanding of life on Earth, of our common history, of what different historical paths might have existed? And that struck me as a really original entry point into a research project. What would you say to that alien now?
1: (laughs) Well, I, I wouldn't have any answer at this point yet. And I think that um, I still think that this is the kind of wisdom that I was perhaps idealistically trying to, to reach when I developed that project. Because you reach a point, I guess, in your intellectual development and your academic career when you wonder what all this knowledge and expertise add up to. And I felt that it it didn't particularly add to much wisdom. I suppose that this is when you start asking particular kinds of questions and questions that are that resonate with perhaps something that we used to have when there were all these big so-called great narratives about human history, about our destiny, about our ethical ascent or moral decline, etc. And I've never really believed um, that these big narratives have ever been destroyed or that uh, the rise of science or the end of history or all these uh, different perspectives have put an end to our aspiration to say something meaningful about what we are and what we've become and where we might possibly be going. Um, I'm not a religious person. I am fascinated by religion as a social and cultural phenomenon, as um, a way of organizing social relations and relating to one another. But um, I think it's possible within a secular uh, philosophy of life and history to develop some kind of uh, common understanding of what we are. So a, a great narrative that is not superstitious um, that doesn't try to erase important and painful episodes of our human history, but that really makes sense of it, unless you really believe that none of that makes sense. Uh, And I don't think that's the case. So the the perspective of an alien uh, species is a way of looking at us and our relations, of course, with other other species, with the whole planet, looking at us from a perspective, that is common and trying to ask a question about our common history. So the answer, I don't have it yet, Catherine. Um, and I'm not even sure that um, I want to have it in a, in a sort of definitive way. Uh, it's just an invitation to try and uh, recapture that sense of commonality and a, a sense of meaningfulness even if we have to make mistakes in the way that we tell these stories, because a a lot of the attempts in the past to tell inclusive stories have been very exclusive, in fact, have been um, just ways of erasing particular experiences, particular episodes, uh, differences, variety, etc. You know, I have these red alerts throughout my research project that guide me away from uh, mistakes of the past, but also try to not be too cautious about asking these big questions and and looking at them at a, at a macro level. But also, you know, you can answer these big questions by looking at uh, small examples, how particular plants have traveled, how they've become incorporated into cultures across the planet. Uh, so it doesn't have to be these big, you know, um, uh, geopolitical or philosophical statements about what we are as a species but it's just trying to tell a different story uh, a common story that uh, captures everything that we are looking at us as both a natural and a social species i mean the commitment of glonos
0: your center to inclusivity and openness is really startling. I mean, there aren't many academic research centers that are so active on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You've got your own YouTube channel. You know, <laughs> this
1: is really sort of a fresh way of doing academia, isn't it? So the center is is trying to make the best of the little resources that we have. Uh, But certainly, I I want to acknowledge how difficult it would have been to launch GLONOS at a different institution in Cambridge. If you want to communicate something that's really valuable to an audience that's from a a different kind of intellectual community, you really have to put the effort and find a different way of bringing them into your topic or to export that topic, you know, into their own uh, universe. So one of the things that that I've done with this uh, the short videos that I produced on um, everyday objects of, of food security, where um, I brought together experts from different fields to talk about these simple things, the potato, wheat, uh, food processing, etc, is that they're able to communicate, what they know, and this is these are really experts who are at the top of their field and they're able to communicate what they know, what they understand in very simple language.
0: You know, one of the things that I think is so creative about your approach is that way that you just turn expectations on their head. And I'm fascinated to know what was your world growing up and when did you first start traveling and exploring beyond that world and thinking, I want to go here and here and here, both
1: physically and intellectually? Oh, well, my background has been very much shaped by the fact that I was always inhabiting overlapping spheres, I guess. So I was born in Lebanon at the beginning of a, of a civil war. And so I grew up in, in France at the the boundaries, I suppose, of of two very different cultures, uh, speaking two very different languages, eating different kinds of foods, but never really uh, thinking that that was particularly unusual. There was no particular expectation of a particular pathway. I was trained originally in, in the natural sciences, I went to med school for a short period, so my first vocation was to was to be a doctor. Really? Um, yes, and and um, and then I I moved to political science, but I maintained a, a great interest in in biology specifically. I've always been fascinated by biological processes. And I suppose I carried that with me when I was developing my understanding of the social sciences. My intellectual development was that I I was never entirely fitting in one single discipline to start with. Um, It was just, somehow it all makes sense. It just just doesn't fit exactly in the way that uh, institutions are organized. And this is where um, a place like Crash becomes really crucial.
0: I've been so struck by the fact that on your personal website, you talk about your academic projects, but you also offer visitors um, a daily dose of jazz, as you call it. <laughs> so jazz music, clearly massively important. What is it about that type of music that moves you the
1: most? That's the the other side of the coin of my deep belief in, in scientific knowledge and in our ability to develop rigorous ways of understanding the world. The other side is, uh, is that it's a different way, I suppose, of connecting with reality, of understanding reality. Jazz music in particular has this incredible freedom, depth. I'm, I'm just in awe of, of the kind of linguistic potential some jazz is even, uh, to me, a, a very spiritual experience. It's interesting because my, my other uh, preferred uh, style of music, I guess, is, um, is very much the opposite in a way. It's more Baroque music, and specifically the, the music of uh, Bach, uh, which is very structured. But I, I find equal pleasure in, in listening to both.
0: Taking this immensely long and broad view of human endeavor means that you do get to see the patterns emerge. You get to see the knowledge acquisition, but you also get to see the knowledge loss. And you also get to see how cyclical things are. In any given moment, it's unlikely that we're here for the first time. This is not our first pandemic, for example, as has constantly been pointed out. Is that comforting? Is that frustrating? When you look at this global long picture and you see mm-hmm. things coming around again and again and you see important things being lost how does that
1: make you feel <laughs> that's a good question there's a reason why particular phenomena happen at particular intervals and of course the whole social sciences are based on that notion that you that you can understand social phenomena because they are not random so if if you're looking at thousands and hundreds of thousands of years of evolution the ability to discern particular patterns for me is very reassuring and then there is a more spiritual um i guess aspect to it which is to try and grasp really what what the meaning of this history has been
0: In your research here at Cambridge, you've chosen to focus really quite deeply on agricultural moments through history and our reliance as a human species on farming and the control of the environment. Why do you think that has been
1: so central to understanding how we are and who we are through history? It's certainly the case that the way we inhabit the land, the way that we become dependent on territory uh, has shaped the development of societies and the relations among societies for centuries. You can tell it as a story of control, whether we're gaining control or losing control, why we decided to settle down and adopt this very tiring, very tough way of life that made us much more dependent on the land, on a few crops, and that introduced so many diseases that we were never subjected to. If you look at the world today, there are very few stories that you can tell that are inclusive. And over the long, long term, if you're looking at major human transformations, then the transition to agriculture and the globalization of the agricultural um, way of life is very much one of these very few major transformations that constitute a thread. And so for me, it was a very obvious candidate for the telling of a global story. At the same time, it sort of um, tied together all the different domains that I was interested in. It ties lots of domains within the humanities and social sciences, I'm looking at knowledge, and of course, agricultural knowledge doesn't doesn't start uh, with um, the industrial uh, agricultural production, but it starts from the very beginning, and and this already gives you a very long uh, a, a time frame. So we're talking about tens of thousands of years of knowledge is being invested in uh, understanding the environment, and then in in selecting crops. Uh, domesticating animals, exploiting them in primary and secondary ways, etc, etc. This also means that it connects our social and cultural histories with our natural histories. So there are many, many physiological transformations that happened to enable us to develop the kind of diets that we have developed. There are many interesting social transformations, of course, that have been related to the fact that suddenly lands became places where you need it to settle. So the the, the, the beginnings of, of, of uh, permanent settlements in the form of villages, the way that cities developed, the way that people had to be managed, administered, the way that crops had to be managed, the way that calendars set the rhythm for people's lives. So the more you look into the history of agriculture, the, the more it opens up all these different fields. And it's just absolutely fascinating.
0: In a time frame as vast as this, and with a subject as vast as this, you've come up with a really creative way—a methodology of um, zeroing in on those important moments. Um, and one of the things you've done is take a single object, for example, from agriculture as an entry point, and use that as a way in. So, for example, I know that your your team have studied the fridge, the potato, wheat a tin can, a piece of meat. <laughs> can you tell me more about
1: that? Well, the idea is that the best way to bring people from very different disciplines to look precisely at our history from uh, you know, this common perspective is to zoom in on particular objects. It, it's obvious that our food is is one of the easiest things that we can relate to. Everyone has to eat. It's very interesting because on the one hand, uh, all these different kinds of foods and ways of preparing them are very personal to people. And they seem to be part of what they believe distinguishes them or their family or their culture. But you can also look at their history as a very global and interconnected history. So looking at wheat, for example, looking at something as simple as your daily bread and how it has become such an important Item of our everyday lives, how it has traveled. The agricultural revolution uh, that is called the Green Agricultural Revolution of the 20th century interestingly started in Mexico because Mexico was having uh, problems in the 40s and 50s with its wheat production. Wheat certainly did not originate in the Americas and it is a staple crop whose origin is is very firmly in southwest asia or what you would call politically uh, uh, the middle east today so it's it's fascinating you know how how do you tell the story of a globalized revolution that starts in mexico with a crop that was not originally meant to be there you could reproduce these particular patterns everywhere almost. And once you start looking at how these very simple objects, and they are they are natural objects, of course, but they're also human-made objects because we have domesticated them, and they've domesticated us, but they have become these cultural, natural objects. If you look at their history, it is completely entwined with our own history, with our own interconnectedness. A lot of this happens through... The exploitation of people's labor, the exploitation of people's lives. A lot of the uh, globalizing movements that have made our agricultural um, systems possible today were based on uh, slavery, were based on wars. It is a history that combines so many different threads. I know
0: that recently that you've started thinking more deeply about the behavior that makes us as humans, unique. And that's the drive to keep moving. The impulse to explore and colonize every corner of our planet, however inhospitable, however much it doesn't suit us at the time that we arrive. Um, And that, you think, makes us different to every other life form on the planet. And that this impulse to travel, to move, to keep globalizing is as old as us. Can you tell me more about that?
1: My project really is about looking at uh, this concept of globalization from a deep historical perspective that takes into account really our whole human cultural evolution. And if you precisely go back to the beginning of our own social transformations and the way that we have developed from one modest uh, species of African primates into this omnipresent species, it's really a, a unique phenomenon uh, in the natural world but i don't associate it necessarily with this recent modern notion of humans being explorers and always being moved by these positive values and by scientific spirit etc cetera, etc cetera. what i do want to explore is what it was that set us on that particular unique trajectory And this is what I'm exploring right now, starting from the very first uh, technologies such as stone tools, but also the first symbolic systems that have developed before writing uh, was even imaginable um, until the present time. And a lot of this I I explore then for the past 15,000 years in the development of agricultural systems, um, which have traveled so much that today... More than seven billion people on this earth are relying on merely five different crops, which is absolutely crazy. But this is the kind of common global history that we have made. It is shaping our future in ways that are potentially very restrictive. So even people who are thinking about how we might uh, colonize other planets, etc., when you stop to think about what we've learned on this planet or the, the kinds of big paradigms that have directed our cultural and natural evolution, we we have explored really potentially one big paradigm, which is the agricultural mode of life, even if we have industrialized, etc. But if we were to, you know, colonize a new planet today, we would take that paradigm with us. It's very interesting to think of the way that we are now trying to design solutions for the big global problems and challenges that we're facing as a kind. And we're also still working within these paradigms, you know, how to improve particular crops, how to preserve particular kinds of agricultural knowledges. I, I think when you're thinking at a, at a long temporal scale, you start to wonder whether these big models were the only ones that were possible, and how they became so prevalent, so so dominant, and whether it's possible to think outside of them, and wh- whether it's... Um, you know, whether they are what really have made us what, what we are um, compared with other possible evolutionary trajectories.
0: Quite clearly, you're differentiating often between knowledge and wisdom and knowledge for knowledge's sake which we can often see running a bit rampant in academia and also then wisdom what do we actually know what do we need to know and that's a much more emotional thing and a much harder one thing Um, and you've also talked about the idea of unlearning being as as important as learning you need to sort of burn a few fields before you can sow something else. And reading about your academic journey, so you started at the Sorbonne in Paris, then you went to Beirut in Lebanon, then you came to the UK and you've been at Sheffield, Aberystwyth, and now here in Cambridge. It strikes me that even though you're still adding knowledge all the time, you're consciously moving between quite different climates, intellectually speaking. So This is going to be a hard question, but what have you had to unlearn most as your career developed?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Having your qualifications officially recognized means that you have to go through the, the conventional wisdom of your field. And then to be heard, you have to be able to speak the language of your field. I suppose that I've done that several times, moving from uh, the natural sciences to the social sciences, and then within the social sciences, exploring very different kinds of of literatures and trying to formulate my own thoughts. So you unlearn the foundations of your confidence as an academic, the terminology that you use, uh, the assumptions that make communication easier between you and and your uh, colleagues, remove all this this baggage that makes things easier and comfortable, uh, the things that you no longer need to clarify, and having now to clarify absolutely everything, uh, which I think is, is re- refreshing, but it also, it also reveals things that you, you've always taken for granted. Because once you're, you, you start thinking across these fields, nobody's really interested in what a particular community of scholars has, has been disagreeing about for the past 10 years. So yes, I've, I've moved around. Uh, I've bought many one-way tickets uh, in my life and it's always exciting moving and, and taking on uh, new positions, engaging very different people and very different cultures. I taught in different settings with students from very, very different backgrounds. I trust that it's a it, it's a good way of expanding i guess your horizons
0: there's a second part to this question of course which is what are you most grateful to know now that you didn't know perhaps a couple of years ago when you arrived in cambridge what's been the new learning
1: my experience in cambridge has been quite extraordinary it's, it's enabled me to really develop my project and, and interact with people without any restrictions, without any boundaries. It's wonderful to be part of a college where you can have lunch and be sitting next to computer scientists and, and archaeologists and botanists and have all kinds of conversations. One of the lessons, I guess, that I've learned is that there is no limit to the opportunities for learning and understanding more and I've never been in a place where people who are so confident in their own work are also so open to new perspectives, to engaging with uh, with the work of other people.
0: If we go back to the idea of daily bread and everybody sharing this idea of breaking bread together, you've got these seminars that you call kum panis at lunchtime, yes. where you can literally come along from whatever discipline you are with your sandwich or your cake, break it, eat it together, discuss ideas. What gave you the idea for that, just a sandwich seminar?
1: The kum panis is is um, the origin of the word companions. And so intellectual companions break bread together intellectually. We invite people from all over the world and symbolically we ask them to bring something from you know, their own country or their country of residence, something they want to share. And the only thing that is common is that interest in engaging people from very different perspectives around a common object. So we're talking about uh, ar- architecture, we're talking about agriculture, or we're talking about... Um, Social inequalities, etc. If if this is what interests you, then surely you would be interested in knowing how uh, that topic can be approached from very different perspectives. So the Kumpani seminar is just a way of saying, well, I would like to make new companions today uh, across the boundaries and walls and and uh, sometimes uh, the abyss that separates different different fields. So it's all about the people. And uh, what brings them together. It's been so lovely to talk to you today because it's rare that you meet somebody who is so accomplished
0: in, in so many areas, who could have followed so many different directions. I, I oh, think it's, it's very
1: kind of you to say because when you look at your own life, you you tend to look at the things you didn't do that you wanted to do. This is really a, a work in progress, and, and wisdom is a work in progress, I suppose. So, well, Dr. Inanna
0: Hamati Ataya. It has been such a pleasure to be your companion this morning, to not quite break bread with you, but certainly sit and talk together and think about some of these enormous ideas that you're tackling in your research. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on Thought Lines. Thank you,
1: Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thoughtlines is
0: presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box.